This is the Managing Smartly podcast with Kestrel Blackmore, show number six. You're listening to the Managing Smartly podcast, helping software developers become managers. If you're a software developer looking for advice on how to be a team leader or manager, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned as we interview developers who have already made the leap and look to gain insight on the mistakes and successes they have made along the way. Now here's your host. Hey everyone, welcome to show number six of the Managing Smartly podcast. Today I'm interviewing Josh Doody, and boy, what a great interview. Josh has some excellent advice across a whole range of topics. In particular, keep an ear out for his two-step process for getting promoted. Also, make sure you listen to the end as I'm going to give you some information on the contest I'm running to coincide with the launch of the podcast. Josh is a former electrical engineer, project manager, and consultant in the software industry. He's the author of the book Mastering Business Email and has recently released another book titled Fearless Salary Negotiation. Here's the show. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me, Castro. I appreciate it. It's great to be on. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, so you, um, your career has taken a pretty interesting path and you've, uh, you've done quite a few different things. And before we get into what you're doing now, how about we talk about what was the last corporate, and I'm using sort of air quotes with my fingers for the listeners, <laughs> corporate, corporate thing that you did and uh, what, what you were doing there? Sure. Uh, so my last uh, uh, corporate job was um, I was a manager and technical consultant, a senior technical consultant, uh, at a uh, services company who partnered with uh, a software company. And so the software company, you know, we were their partner. They would send us business. And then I managed a team of uh, three people who implemented those projects that they sent us. Uh, and, and so I kind of wore two hats. One was the manager hat, and one was the actual technical consulting hat that I did about half the time. Gotcha, yeah. So you were, you were sort of still doing the work as well as managing guys. Yes, which is just sort of the nature of the business uh, at a services company uh, where uh, the, the billable hour is uh, the one thing to rule them all. Mm-hmm. So how did you get started in, uh, in, in, in IT and in software development if we go back right to the start? Right. So um, undergraduate uh, studies were at the University of Florida here in Gainesville where I live, uh, and I studied computer and electrical engineering. And then my first full-time job out of school was uh, as an electrical engineer for a very large um, American Department of Defense company. And uh, then after a couple of years of that, um, I wanted to try something different. So I actually went from uh, an electrical engineer at a huge company to a consultant at a 30-person software startup. Um, and then that kind of began the last, the second stage of my career, which, which lasted about 10 years. Um, where I, you know, was a consultant, a project manager, uh, did some product development, all in software, uh, and all in uh, what's called the talent management or talent development industry. Um, and so I wore a number of hats there, kind of with my last position being the one that I mentioned earlier, which is the the manager slash senior consultant. Okay, so uh, electrical engineering. Does that mean that uh, you did you did a fair bit of electronics when you first started off, or? I was actually in test engineering, 
And so the answer is, is yes, but I was uh, not designing them so much as I was working on extremely expensive sort of circuit board components that were being tested. And then when they failed tests, my job was to either fix them directly or to diagnose the failure and have someone else fix it, depending on, you know, what, which component had failed. So it was less of a design role and more of a test engineering role where I was trying to figure out what went wrong and, and make it better. Yes, okay. Yeah, because my career, I've always been pure software. And so uh, any time I talk to someone who can do something in the real world, again, inverted commas, I sort of tip my hat in some regards because, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know anything about that aspect. They're very similar and very different at the same time. The process, and that's why, you know, there's this sort of uh, umbrella uh, word engineer uh, that we use, right? And so the, the, the process is the mental things that I would do as an electrical engineer or a test engineer looked very similar to uh, what I do when I'm writing software or doing software engineering. Um, the difference is, you know, uh, one of them uh, I'm holding, you know, a, an ohmmeter or, you know, some electrical leads in my hand and maybe looking at something under a microscope to see if I can find a, a, a solder uh, joint that's failed, uh, whereas in software, you know, you're looking at failing tests and that sort of thing. But the, the mental process is really similar. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you, you, you're doing the, the, the test, I guess, electrical engineering stuff, and then eventually you made a switch across to project management. Is that correct? That's right. I, I think the impetus for that was that I um, – it, it's sort of a, a long story, but I'll give you the abbreviated version, which is, you know, I, I had talked to my manager uh, and some other people who worked at the company I worked at. I remember it was a very large Department of Defense company, and so – pretty close to a government job, uh, but not quite technically government. And so I could look out long term and see what my career path looked like. And it looked like a very stable career path that could last 20 or 30 years. And then I would retire. And, you know, all along the way, I would get the occasional, you know, two or three percent salary increase. I would get promoted every two or three years and sort of slowly walk up either the technical or management ladder until I was, you know, a senior manager of some kind working at this very big company with a nice paycheck. But that seemed sort of boring to me. And I, I wanted to do something, you know, where I could have a little bit more control and maybe try some things and take some risks. Um, also, I was, you know, I guess the, the term might be back office, but I was working, you know, behind the scenes. I wasn't working with the end customer. I wasn't working with, you know, real people. I was working with computers and internal partners. Whereas, you know, the job that I took after the electrical engineering gig was as a project manager, client facing, you know, customer facing person who was working with them to manage projects and actually consult and offer solutions and help them to solve problems and that sort of thing. And so that was the real big shift for me is kind of getting out from behind the computer and getting in front of the customer. Mm, yeah, for sure. It's a, it's, it's a big difference, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's a huge, huge difference. And I think, you know, for it's, it's also a, a personal preference sort of thing. I was lucky that I got to try them both. But, you know, a lot of engineers kind of prefer to, to be behind the computer and just solve problems all day, whereas um, some of us prefer to kind of get out in front of the customer and actually, you know, talk to people. Um, about their problems and solve them that way. There are different ways to solve problems, and I think I prefer the one where you interact with the person whose problem uh, you're solving directly. Mm, yeah, that, that's correct, isn't it? And I like what you said there, well, about the, um, you know, a lot of developers or, or technicians would prefer to just sort of keep doing that stuff, you know, be behind the scenes and just with the computer. Um, but, yeah, if you're doing that public-facing or client-facing type of work, it's, it's completely different. And so the skill set is kind of uh, different than what you'd be using primarily just as a developer. And so, and that's the same with management as well. So, I mean, eventually at some point you started moving into management. 
Was this a, del- a deliberate move you made or something you just kind of fell into? <laughs> I, wish, I wish that I could claim it was deliberate, but if I'm honest, uh, I fell into it. My first sort of pseudo-management role, and I think this may be pretty common, where um, I think there's this idea that you go from being an individual contributor and to sort of just being teleported into management. In reality, I think it's more of a transition where you might do a little bit of, you know, managing a small team for a special project or something comes up where you're, you know, maybe co-managing a team or something. And that was uh, what happened for me. Um, I had actually been let go from a company that I worked at in 2009 and was unemployed for about five months. And then out of the blue, I got a call from uh, a manager at the company that had let me go. And he said, hey, I know that you were working in professional services before, uh, consulting and project managing, but I'm building a support team from scratch here in Gainesville. And would you like to come help me build this team? And, and it was um, you know, mostly relationships and, and opportunities that came from relationships. And so it, it literally fell in my lap. I mean, I was, you know, just sitting at home and got a phone call and I had never met this manager before. It was all reputation. He just heard about me. So that was how I got my, you know, my first sort of pseudo management gig. I wasn't technically a manager. I was technically, I think, a senior technical support engineer. But most of what I did was interview people, hire people um, and, and, and build that team from zero to about 25 people before it was all said and done. I'm assuming that was a lot smaller company than the, the large sort of quasi government organization you'd been at before? It was. It was sort of in the in the middle. The first company I worked at was, you know, tens of thousands of people. The second company I worked at was 30 people. And this company, mm-hmm. I think, was around 1,000 people. Okay. Okay. So 1,000 people, that's still fairly big. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how did you find it? How did you find it making that uh, starting there and sort of being in a, in, a, in, a, in a management position? I really liked it. Uh, and I think that was when I kind of understood that maybe this is something that I should do more of. It was First of all, it was a very interesting time because the team that we built, um, this was in, you know, early 2010, we were building this team. uh, And that was, you know, I guess technically the tail end of the the quote unquote great recession. Right. And so there were a lot of people who were out of work and and even more people who were looking for work. And we happened to be in a university town. So the result was that all the people who were applying for jobs on the team that I was building were very, very smart, experienced people who wanted a job. And so it was sort of, you know, maybe the easiest possible way to begin managing because every person that I saw, I almost didn't need to look at resumes because they were so, you know, exceptionally qualified to do the kind of work that we needed. And so I got to work with, you know, really, really smart people um, and help build a team of, of super. I mean, the whole team was superstars. It, I think, you know, maybe a lot of managers would say that, but all of these people could have been doing, you know, much more advanced work than they were doing on this particular team in that particular time. Hiring people is is really crucial, isn't it? So to be in an environment where you're essentially getting the, the cream of the crop applying, that, that would be a good position to be in. Oh, absolutely. And, it, you know, it made that first foray into management just that much easier because they're, you know, now looking back, um, there were so many things I didn't have to worry about as somebody who was managing people um, because everybody that we got, you know, we, we had the cream of the crop, as you said. And so there were a lot of things I didn't have to worry about. So it was, you know, made it particularly easy. I, I don't think I realized that at the time, but in hindsight, that was certainly the case. Yeah. Okay. So what are some of those things that you think made it easier for you? Well, first of all, they were, you know, extremely technically competent. And, and so that allowed me when I was interviewing people to, uh, you know, literally kind of glance at their resume, make sure that they had a few keywords on their um, technologies mostly, and then just talk to them because I was interviewing for a customer facing technical support engineer role on my team. And so I could just spend the whole interview 
talking to the person and trying to get a feel for, you know, what's it like to interact with this person? Um, how comfortable are they problem solving? How are they under pressure? And that sort of thing. And so the, the interview process for me became very sort of one dimensional because the technical boxes were all checked. And so I could just talk to them and see, you know, how do I think they're going to do eight hours a day talking to clients and, and people who are very frustrated and that sort of thing. And so I, I focused on fit. You know, I, I was, you know, how how will they fit in the organization on this team? How will they interact with the other engineers we've already brought on? And so it was, it was a lot easier that way that I could just focus on thinking about what it's like to work with them as opposed to, you know, can they solve these technical problems? Mm-hmm. And how about what you sort of found tough? What was the, maybe the, you know, the hardest thing of sort of making that transition? You know, probably one of the hardest things was was getting used to when you when you move up, the further you move up the management chain, the more often, at least for me, the more often that I found that I deal with escalations and, and, and bigger problems that can't be solved by an individual on the team. And so, you know, with that team, it was hard to kind of get out of the day-to-day um, directly solving easy problems and, and transition to, you know, most of the problems that I had on my plate were people who were very frustrated or their problem just couldn't be solved or it wasn't being solved quickly enough to meet their business needs. And so that, that shift from just taking everything that comes in and maybe, you know, fixing the problems that are low-hanging fruit and moving into the, the world where most of the stuff that, that wound up on my plate was escalated angry customers that my really good technical support engineers couldn't satisfy quickly enough. And, and so that's a, that's a shift where you go to work every day and it's, you're only dealing with, you know, harder problems than you're used to dealing with. Yes, yeah, of course, yeah. And all right, customers, I guess they're already in a state of uh, annoyance and you're having to deal with them, aren't you? Right, exactly. I mean, you know, I don't, you don't get people who say, oh, I forgot my password, can you help me reset it? You get people who say, <laughs> you know, I talked to Joe for two weeks now and he hasn't been able to solve my problem. What's your problem? You know, fix this for me. And, you know, they don't know that maybe Joe was waiting on engineering and engineering was backlogged and that kind of thing. And so it's it's a much more... You don't get to do the easy ones. It's all it's all more more difficult the problems that require finesse and you know the ability to talk to the client and listen to the client and make them feel comfortable. For sure. So that's a fairly big thing to be dealing with clients, uh, especially when they're having problems. And so, was there any particular skills that you think that you had? And you also mentioned that you you really enjoyed the transitions into management. Is there any skills that you think that you had that helped you out with this transition? To be honest, I think the biggest skill that helped was just empathy. I'm a nat- naturally empathetic person, and so I tend to hear people and empathize with people when they're frustrated or having other problems. And I think it's really important when you're talking to a frustrated client or trying to solve a really difficult problem that's taking longer than maybe the people who are waiting on the solution would prefer um, to be able to empathize with them and to understand where they're sitting, what it looks like and what they're going through, uh, and to talk to them in a way that makes them feel confident that you know what you're doing and you're working as hard as you can to solve their problem as quickly as possible. I think that's probably the biggest skill is, is empathy. Making this transition, sort of moving away from purely technical roles into more managing people roles, what role do you think soft skills has to play in that? I think it's most of it. You know, the, the more you get in, into management, um, at least for me, uh, it's funny because as soon as I say I think it's most of it, I can think of, you know, really competent managers that I've worked for and worked with who maybe weren't the strongest with soft skills. But for me, soft skills is, is a tremendous, tremendous import um, in terms of, you know, the ability to control the situation. And I think, you know, being able to communicate verbally 
to be able to calm clients down that are upset, to be able to, to use written communication, um, whether it be email or, or memos or whatever. I think all of those soft skills are extremely important, especially when uh, your specific managerial role requires escalation management. Um, I think there are ways you can get into management that don't require escalation management, especially on the technical side of most businesses. You can usually not have to deal with with that sort of an escalation. But it, on the, the client-facing side and the services side of most businesses, um, it's, it's really important to have soft skills to be able to, to, to deal with those situations effectively so that they don't get worse and so that you can actually resolve them. Yeah, the customer's not going to really care about how awesome your uh, computer science skills are, are they? They don't care at all. <laughs> zero. They care zero. That's right. How can you help me now? And what are you going to do about it? Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's where empathy comes in, right? So, in in the talent management or talent development industry where I've worked for almost ten years, most of the people who were escalating, the the clients that I was working with were mostly in HR, right? And so, as the industry changed over time, also there was a shift from back in the you know the heyday, the pre-recession days. When everybody, all every company just had tons of money, and um, they were spending it on everything, you know, huge, you know, fancy conferences and a lot of travel and, um, you know, nice benefits and perks for their employees. And then the recession hit, and everybody had to start cutting back. So the result of that, from you know my perspective as a client-facing person and later a manager, was that the budgets that the clients I was dealing with were being cut. And so I would went from working with you know a dedicated HR team of five or six people who were solely tasked with setting up the software that I was consulting with them on to a few years later working with, you know, one person who was doing it on the side because there was a budget constraint and they just needed to get the thing set up. And so it's important to have that empathy to, to understand that that person has this call with me where they're going to tell me about their problem. And then they're immediately jumping on another call with a, a business partner internally or somebody else, something un, totally unrelated to this, this problem. And yet their neck is on the line. If they don't solve this problem, if I don't help them solve this problem, their, their job could literally be in jeopardy. And so that's where empathy comes in, is not thinking from my perspective how annoying this is to deal with this problem or how frustrating this client is, but thinking from their perspective of what's it like to be in their shoes, how frustrated are they, what kind of pressure are they under, time pressure or job pressure or whatever. Uh, and so that empathy and, and soft skills really helps to kind of address those problems in a way where I'm thinking from their perspective and not thinking about, you know, my own perspective. Yeah, that's really good. That's a good um philosophy to have even with your own staff, your own guys that are working for you to have empathy on how they, they see things, not just always with your manager's hat on. So what do you think is, is the fundamental goal of management? Wow, uh, that's, a, that's a very tough question, I think, um, but a good one. You know, I, I think ultimately you have to tie it back to, you know, the business goals. And, you know, there are a lot of different schools of thought on this, but I think ultimately most businesses, for-profit businesses exist for profit. And so as a manager, my job is to help facilitate the, the, the profit making of the company, which sounds sort of um, you know, abstract and capitalist and cutthroat. But the way that you do that as a manager, I think, is, is by thinking about how can I maximize the efficacy of the team that I'm managing and minimize the costs of the business from the same team. And so, you know, to drive to drive, again, profits, to keep margins high and to keep profits high. And so one a big way to do that is to reduce attrition. And so that means keeping your team happy. And so that was a, that's a big thing for me is, you know, understanding, you know, where are they right now? What, what personal problems might this person be having at home right now 
that I can help alleviate so that they can be more effective when they're working and then not think about work when they're not working, that sort of thing. Um, and so, if, you know, tying everything back to how do we reduce attrition, how do we make people more efficient so that they can do, um, you know, the same task in half the time so they can get more tasks done per day but without, you know, sort of losing their sanity. Um, so I think that, that, you know, back to your, your question, and again, this is this is totally off the cuff, but I, I think uh, I would say that the goal of management is to try and help the company make money. Um, but the way that you do that as a people manager, especially, is sort of subtly different than the sort of, you know, just create more widgets. It's more about how do I keep these people happy? How do I make them efficient? How do I keep them from going somewhere else? Or how do I find a role that's appropriate for them and that challenges them in a way that will make them happy and make them very productive for the company in the long term? I like that people manager. That's that's really what, it, what it's about, isn't it? Really, so that's that's good. I like that. So, what are some of the day to day things that you used to do when you were leading your team? Well, about half of my job was the the technical side. You know, my last the last job that I talked about earlier, which was at once challenging, but also I think very good because I was you know in the trenches. I I pulled my projects that I worked on from the same bucket that everybody on my team pulled their projects from. So. I did that and, and wanted to keep it that way so that I understood what they were doing day to day. I could have probably found ways to get out of doing that, uh, that day to day work, but I think it's important to do that so that I know when they come to me with a problem or something they're struggling with that I can sympathize because I might be struggling with the same thing. So half my job was just doing those technical projects. The other half was the, the managerial part, um, the people manager part where I kind of split that time. So about a quarter of my time overall was for actually managing the team. A lot of it was dealing with escalations. I, I train my team to, I, I like to differentiate between what I call internal and external escalations. Um, internal escalations are okay and they are good. Uh, external escalations are not good. Meaning if, if somebody on my team comes to me and says, this customer is not happy, here's what went wrong, and I need your help to kind of bring them back before they get really angry, that's good. Um, if I get a call from a customer and they say, I'm furious and this is completely gone off the rails, can you help? That's bad. That's an external escalation. Ah, uh, yeah, gotcha. Yep. Um, and so a lot of that was dealing with those escalations and, and I kind of, you know, created more work for myself on the front end there because I encouraged my team to bring those things to me. You know, I over and over told them, don't wait until it's too late. Don't try and salvage this. If it looks like it's going sideways, just come to me and we'll figure it out and I'll, I'll get you what you need to solve it. So in the short term, that means I'm spending a lot of time dealing with escalations. But in the long term, it means that I'm usually dealing with stuff behind the scenes and I'm not actually talking to customers because they're they're not angry enough to have asked to talk to me yet. Uh, and then I also manage the partnership with the partner that I mentioned. So, you know, I worked at a services company who took business from a software company. And so, you know, I, I also was responsible for the particular kind of projects that we did, making sure that that business continued to flow over to me and my team, you know, working out um, processes and helping, you know, to kind of, you know, iron out the wrinkles um, in the way that we took business from them and were paid for business from them and, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about um, the internal escalation versus external escalation and the, uh, getting your guys to constantly communicate with you. I guess that's what you what you're after, wasn't it? Absolutely. That that's you know one of the most important things I think w with managing a team is just making sure that those lines of communication are open and and almost going overboard and making sure that they know you can come to me. If something is wrong, and I'm talking per personally and professionally, um, you know, if there's something going on in your personal life that's distracting you and we need to adjust your work hours, I want to know about it before it becomes an issue, like before you spend a lot of time working crazy hours and also struggling with this thing at home, 
that's going to be bad for you and you're going to burn out and I don't want that to happen to you. And so come to me early. So, you know, there are internal escalations that are also personnel escalations as opposed to client. Um, but communication is, you know, I think that's the most important thing that a manager can do tactically is make sure that they communicate clearly with their team, but also to make sure that the team knows they can come to them um, and that the line of communication is open and it's, you know, um, full duplex, that it goes both ways. So how did you go about building that trust with your team, I guess, because that's all part of them feeling open enough to be able to come to you and talk to you about these things. How did you, you do that? I think in two ways. Um, the first way is I had a team meeting every week on Monday, and so I would encourage the team on that meeting to work out um, – you know, to help each other with things that they could help with. And so I think that's one way of sort of demonstrating that I'm serious about, you know, I basically have 45 minutes a week is all I scheduled for this team meeting. And I allowed a lot of it to be used for the team just to talk to each other about anything that they were struggling with. So trying to lead by example, basically saying, you know, the ability for our team to communicate uh, internally is so important to me that I'm, I'm willing to give up, you know, a good portion of my weekly meeting with the whole team to allow you guys to communicate. The second was, so that's kind of by example, the second one was um, very tactically, I had a bi-weekly half hour one-on-one. So I only met with my team every other week for 30 minutes. But sometimes I would come to that meeting with an agenda, especially if there was some sort of logistical or operational something or other that we needed to talk about. But a lot of times I would come and just say, I don't have an agenda this week. I just want to know what's on your mind. How are you feeling about your workload? Um, you know, a lot of questions like that to allow them to, to say, you know, I'm actually really struggling with this problem. Can you help me? Or, well, things are not going great in this area. Can you help me? And so, you know, just sometimes almost making it uncomfortable in that meeting where I would show up and say, I really don't have anything to talk about. What's on your mind? And a lot of people's initial reaction there as an individual contributor is to first say, oh, everything's fine. And then when there's a Mm -hmm. little bit of silence, they'll think about myself. Well, actually, you know, last Friday, uh, I had this hard conversation with a client and this is what happened and now I'm not sure what to do with that or how to follow up, right? And so stuff will start bubbling up to kind of fill the awkward silence. So I, I think maybe, you know, management by awkward silence might be kind of an unusual technique, but <laughs> I think it's effective. You know, basically just sitting there and saying, look, I've carved out half an hour for you and I'm going to sit here and um, if you absolutely have nothing to talk about, then maybe we'll get some time back, but I want to make sure that you know that, that now is the time that I've carved out for you to bring any issues to me or ask me questions or guidance or anything like that. So let's talk about it. Yeah, because the easy path with a one-on-one is to really just turn it into a status update, isn't it? Yes, it's a lot easier. Uh, I mean, like I said, there's no awkward silence when you say, what's your workload like? How many products did you close last week? You know, what new skills do you want to learn, right? Like you can just check off the boxes and then burn half an hour and you're done. <laughs> that's, that's a lot easier than sitting there. Kind of, you know, and we use video chat at my company. So, you know, we're sitting there kind of looking at each other and not talking. And I'm just sort of waiting for, you know, waiting to see if there's anything that, that is, might bubble up that we could talk about. And I think my team often kind of felt like maybe I was just sort of showing up and, and not planning for it, but not preparing. Yeah, right. But, but I was really prepared to hopefully kind of surface some things. And I found out, you know, a lot of interesting things and was able to help solve some unique problems. And, a lot of times that's when people will kind of let their guard down and, um, you know, tell me what's really going on or, you know, why they're struggling for the past couple of weeks, um, you know, with these particular types of projects or, or, or that sort of thing. So, um, but that one-on-one I think is really critical. And I think carving out time in the one-on-one that isn't dedicated to status updates is also pretty critical. Yeah, no, that's really good. So let's, um, let's sort of talk a little bit about uh, some some tips for career advancement. You you wrote an article uh, on your website called The Two-Step Process to Getting Promoted. Tell us a little bit about that and, and just some of your thoughts on, you know, how does one 
move from being a technician into management? Sure. So I think that the first thing that somebody should do is to understand whether or not they want to be a manager. And I think most of the people listening to your podcast do. You know, that's that's what your that's what your message is, right? Yes. But um, I think it is important uh, to make sure that you want to be a manager. And a good way to do that is to uh, first observe uh, other managers in your company or in your industry, and then also just sort of look at job descriptions and see, you know, what does their day-to-day look like? And the reason that I even mentioned it is there are really two kind of tracks I alluded to earlier. I called them ladders, but there's the managerial ladder and the technical ladder in most companies where you move uh, to be a people manager or a team manager, or you can often move to be a more technical manager, which can be um, a technical lead where you are sort of mentoring technical resources or even into, you know, sort of product management in that sort of world. Sometimes there are product manager roles that don't have direct reports. And so I think it's important early on to kind of identify which one you're comfortable with um, and, and to pursue that. And so assuming that after that sort of litmus test that, that you've said, you know what, I do want to be a people manager. I want to move up that way in that, that part of the business. Then I think the first thing to do is internally at your company to look for roles uh, that you're interested in. A lot of times this can be, you know, the easiest one is just the one above you. Is that a people manager role or maybe your boss's role? But also to look across the organization, especially in flat organizations. Um, you can also have, you know, often have to look kind of across the organization to find these roles. But figure out what the actual job is that's there and then to determine what the delta is between that, that role, the manager role, and your role. And so usually um, it'll be pretty obvious. You know, you can write down the five or ten key responsibilities for your individual contributor role, and then you can look over at the managerial role and see what the things are that they're doing that you're not doing in your role. So that's step one is to identify that delta. What's the difference between where I am and where I want to be? My target job Mm -hmm. is is what I call it when I write. So once you've identified your target job, you've identified the delta between those two, then you can create a roadmap to start checking off the boxes of the managerial role that you want to pursue that you don't already have checked off in your current role. So a lot of times that'll be, you know, mentorship or um, a lot of these roles that are people manager roles also come with some sort of, let's say, financial planning or financial responsibility, looking at forecasting um, and accountability in that way. And so you you say, okay, well, these are the three things that that managerial role does that I don't do right now. Here's how I'm going to actually get experience with those three things before I get promoted. So in that two-step process, I think the second step, I don't have it up right now, but I think the second step is do the job <laughs> yes. uh, before you get promoted. Um, yes. And I think this is something that people don't quite get is that it's pretty rare that you'll get promoted into anything really, but certainly into a managerial role on potential. Uh, most managers and executives and C-level people, VPs, directors are not promoting people based on their potential. They don't look at somebody and say, you know what, I think that that person could be a good manager. I think she would be a good manager. I'm going to promote her and let's see if she's a good manager. What they say is she's already mentoring three people and she's been sending me, you know, financial forecast information once a month for the last year. And there's, you know, one or two other things, but she's already doing those things in her job kind of on the side or she's picking those things up on her own or she's asked me for training or she went and got her PMP certification or whatever it looks like. And they say, so she's pretty much already doing the job. And this other person just left the company and that job opened up. So let's just promote her because she's already doing the job. So, so the two, you know, to, to zoom back out, two things. One is identify your target job and then identify the delta between your current job and your target job and make a plan to check off the boxes for the things of the target job that you're not doing currently. And then the second thing is to do those things, to execute your plan before getting promoted. And so what you're doing is basically building an airtight case 
where it's not about promoting on potential. It's about recognizing the work that you've already done for your target role and just making it official and saying, well, she's already doing that. So let's just make it official. All we have to do now is change the title because the responsibilities are already in place. Yeah, that's such great advice. Management are always looking for go-getters. It just makes their job so much easier. You know, these people are already, you know, they've, they've got some, um, not ambition, but, you know, they can they can see an issue and proactive. Sorry, they're proactive. That's the term mm-hmm. I'm after. Um, proactive about uh, getting in there and getting things done as opposed to trying to draw someone out. Uh, management is naturally going to be um, drawn to the people who are proactive. Right. And the reason for that is is really um, it's a risk tolerance reason, right? It's very risky to promote someone, especially, you know, if you're promoting based on potential, usually what that means is that person is doing pretty well in their job, but they haven't necessarily demonstrated competency for the managerial job that you might be needing to fill, right? If they haven't demonstrated the ability to do the managerial uh, responsibilities, um, then you're taking a risk. And that risk could be bigger than simply putting them in that role and them not being a great fit. It could be an attrition risk. If you promote the wrong person into the wrong job, they could burn out or they could go find a job where they're more comfortable and they'll leave your company. And that's a big problem for somebody that you thought had potential, right? So managers are, are risk-averse people, uh, usually by nature, especially uh, middle management types. Um, they're usually as interested in keeping their job as they are in uh, doing a good job. And so it's important to to help mitigate that risk for them. And you do that by demonstrating that you're ready. You want to, you know, this goes back to the empathy thing that I talked about earlier, right? Think about from the manager's seat. If they're going to promote somebody, they want to be, the more sure they can be that you're going to succeed, the more likely they are to promote you. Um, and that's why you don't promote based on potential a lot of times is is that it's, it's just risky. And you're risking uh, this person being an attrition risk at your company, but you're also risking maybe your own job or your own reputation. If you promote too many people into managerial roles and they're not cut out for it, what does that say about your ability to manage? And so, you know, for putting on my, my empathy hat, looking at that guy, the manager, who's going to promote somebody, I can make it a lot easier on him if I, if I say, look, I'm already doing this managerial job. I'm basically not a risk at all. Uh, I'm already doing the work. I like doing the work. This is good for me because I've already demonstrated that I want to do this and that I can do it. It's good for you because you know that I can do it and that if you promote me, I'm not going to disappoint you or make you look bad. Mm, yeah, very good. Let's let's change track a little bit. And um, you've recently embarked on a pretty exciting adventure. Tell us a little bit a little bit about it. <laughs> sure. Um, so after about ten years in the industry that I mentioned before, I started really. I, I kind of started wanting to be more entrepreneurial. And so what that meant for me was starting with side projects, building web applications, and then also writing. Um, you mentioned that I just released uh, Mastering Business Email, uh, a book, and then I'm also you know, about to release Fearless Salary Negotiation. And so I was working on those and also some web applications and just sort of found myself um, constrained for time, but also for sort of mental bandwidth. For a number of years, I've been working pretty much seven days a week. Uh, I would work my day job, and then after the day job, I would work a couple hours at night, and then most weekends, I would do quite a bit of work on the weekends. Eventually, that just sort of started making me tired, and I think that was, you know, my my day job responsibilities were were more taxing, um, just more hours and, and, and more sort of emotional energy to manage a team and manage so many projects. Um, and so I decided that I would like to see what I can do with, um, entrepreneurial pursuits. And so I saved up money for about a year and a half 
and then, um, you know, left the position that we talked about earlier and said, I'm going to try and publish a couple of books and build a web application and kind of see how it goes. So that's what I'm doing now um, is working full time on writing and then also writing software. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a bold move to make, Josh. It is. Um, speaking of risk aversion, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's right. I'm, I'm pretty risk averse. However, uh, I did this in, in in the way that I would do it as a risk averse person, which is that I uh, I cut my cost of living quite a bit, um, saved up quite a bit of money, and then kind of made made a runway for myself so I can say, you know, I'm going to take six months, a year, eighteen months, and work on these things. And if they don't work out, then you know, there are, you know, my, my ego is probably hurt a little bit and my savings is depleted a bit, but I'm not, you know, uh, risking my well-being or, you know, risking going into debt or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And and I like that, you know, uh, you're right. I think by nature, software developers are fairly risk adverse and management particularly. And I think that comes down to our sense of logic. Uh, but you've you've taken a very uh, developer approach to it, logically doing some things which set you up for a win. Right, and that's that's what, that's a, a really good way to to describe it is logically doing things to set myself up for a win. So I I don't know what the outcome will be, um, but I do know that I've positioned myself to maximize uh, the chances that I can succeed, that I can you know mm. turn these things into you know hopefully a living. Um, or at least a really good experience with very little little downside other than, you know, I got to take some time off and just do things that I enjoy doing all the time. Mm. So tell us about the books. Uh, there's Mastering Business Email, and you're also currently writing Fearless Seller in Negotiation. They seem to be around a sort of uh, a career sort of focus, I guess. Would that be correct? And why did you write them? Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, they are sort of career-focused. I think I wrote them... Uh, because just over the years, I got a lot of questions from people about this sort of thing. I've made some unorthodox decisions. Um, for example, jumping from being an electrical engineer to being a project manager at a 30-person software startup. Um, and then doing that for a while. Uh, and then uh, in 2011, I actually quit my day job for eight months and just sort of didn't have a plan at that time. It wasn't quite like this time. And so over time, people have kind of recognized that I do kind of unorthodox things, but they seem to work out. Um, and so they asked me a lot of questions about, well, how can I get this sort of opportunity or how do I get into management or, you know, how do I maximize this opportunity that just fell in my lap and those sorts of questions. So that got me thinking about writing about these things. And I've always kind of written about these a little bit on the side um, just as, you know, things occurred to me. But I, I decided to make a more concerted effort to really write a narrative around this and, and to create something that could actually help people advance their careers in a way that they understand what's going on. So Mastering Business Email was actually the first chapter that I wrote for Fearless Salary Negotiation, but that's back when that was not a book about salary negotiation, but it was what I was calling a career management guide. Um, oh, okay. And so you can kind of see where, you know, if I'm writing a guide for people to help manage their career and to stand out among their peers, that being proficient with business email would be a, a great way to do that. So that's that's why I wrote that was I was thinking, you know, for me, um, interacting with people, especially as a consultant, it's all email. I mean, you know, I, I, my, I sometimes would send and receive hundreds of emails in a day. And and so on, at that scale, at that volume, email proficiency was what I think one of my differentiators. It's one of the things that made me more proficient at my job than other people maybe in the industry is my ability to to use email extremely effectively instead of seeing it as some sort of like a necessary evil. Yeah, I can't tell you how many 
developers I've worked with over the years who've, who who are terrible at writing emails. Right, and the, and the, it's interesting because I see uh, great value in being good at email, but as I said, most people see it as a necessary evil. So most of those developers, they're not you know maliciously writing terrible email. It's that they see their primary job function is writing code. And, and when they have to write an email, they're being taken away from writing code. Yeah, so do you view writing email really as just a, another communication method which you want to do well? That's 100% accurate, yes. So just, just as I'm interested in having a phone conversation that's meaningful and actionable, I'm interested in making sure that when I send an email to somebody that it is a good use of their time to open the email um, and that we can actually you know, accomplish business objectives because I sent the email which is why we're all here, right? Yep. So, um, okay, so that's, that's mastering business email and fearless salary negotiation. How's that going? It's actually going really well. I'm, I am chomping at the bit to publish it. Um, the reason I haven't yet is that um, I have written and been published before, but I did a traditionally published book, and so there was a lot that I didn't know about self-publishing that I needed to learn. Since I had mastering business email, when I switched to my salary negotiation book, Fearless Salary Negotiation, over to specifically focusing on salary negotiation and career advancement, then mastering business email just didn't fit anymore. So I said, you know what, this is a great opportunity for me to take this text that I wrote as a career management strategy and turn that into a book that I can self-publish to learn how to self-publish books. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I finished that actually yesterday. I think I did the last thing I needed to do to, to publish Mastering Business Email and create that pipeline and that sales funnel there. And so now I can go back and focus on fearless salary negotiation, which it's been really hard for me to resist just sort of like throwing it out there because I want to do it right with fearless salary negotiation. I don't, I don't want to rush it, but it's, I'm very excited about it. I've seen tremendous results. It's helped a lot of people. And I'm, that's not just me, you know, putting on like a salesman hat. I'm batting a thousand. I mean, everybody that I've ever helped um, negotiate a salary has done quite a bit better than they would have without my help. So I'm excited about it because I think it can help, especially developers, technical people who are intimidated by salary negotiation. That's why it's called fearless salary negotiation. It can help them see it as an engineered process and not as a personal uh, emotional interaction. Yeah, no, 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 so true. I mean, both those books sound really good for uh one, just anyone, just even just a software developer, but but particularly for someone who's trying to wanting to advance their career and stand out from the the pack, I guess. Right, which is the whole idea. That can be your competitive advantage, right? Your competitive advantage among uh, peers in your industry can be that you are a better communicator and that communicating with you is more efficient and therefore beneficial to the business or to the client. For salary negotiation, I think the competitive advantage, to be honest with you, is just acknowledging that negotiating salary is something that you should do and then doing it. Yeah. Most people are just so scared to even try it. They're afraid that the job offer will get pulled or that they'll start off on the wrong foot with their hiring manager and, and that sort of thing. And, and so there's, I think it's low-hanging fruit. Writing a, a good email is a good way to stand out among your peers and, and simply acknowledging that negotiating salary is a good idea can be extremely lucrative. Uh, in terms of, you know, your salary and your uh, comfort and fit at your company in terms of long-term uh, happiness, you know, where you know that you're being compensated fairly for the value that you add to the company. Yeah, for sure, definitely. So uh, I'll put some notes, obviously, into the into the show notes, but where can we find some more information about these products you've got, Josh? Sure. Um, so they're, they're not very creative um, where you can find them. Mastering Business Email is at masteringbusinessemail.com. 
I actually just published uh, the book to Amazon. So there's a package that you can get um, that you can buy for yourself or for your team that includes a lot of different tools and things like that. But it's also on Amazon now for, I think it's $5.99. Um, and so you can okay. find out how to buy it there. Um, so I made, you know, essentially what I did was sort of said, how can I make this as cheap as possible so that people can get it and actually start using it? And so that's why it's on yeah. Amazon. Fearless Salary Negotiation is at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. You can sign up there right now for the, the you know, the uh, a free chapter of the book to kind of see what it's going to be about. And then also to kind of be to stay tuned as I work towards publishing it, hopefully before the end of the year. So you can learn about both of those at their, their sort of obvious uh, <laughs> domains. Uh, that, that's good. It's, it, it makes it so much easier for people to remember. So masteringbusinessemail.com and fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, okay, excellent. So um, I guess we're getting close to wrapping up now, but I just wanted to get your final thoughts. What would be your suggestion for someone who is about to take their first, um, whether it's you know technical leadership role or management position, what would be your suggestion for them? I think, you know, so assuming that they've done the, the kind of two-step uh, process to get promoted that I mentioned earlier. So they're, they're in the role. I think really the, the first thing to do, two things come to mind. The first thing is find somebody who you can, you know, a mentor would be ideal. So somebody you can go to and say, hey, you've been managing for a while. I'm just starting out as a manager. Do you mind if I reach out to you if I have questions or if I'm struggling with something? And so a lot of times, I think for most people listening to this, um, they may have immediately had somebody come to mind and are like, that's the person that I would reach out to, right? A former manager who is a great manager or maybe their current manager or somebody that they can reach out to with questions when they're struggling with how to solve a problem as a manager. A lot of these problems have been solved before by uh, more competent people um, than us as, as new managers. And so reach out and ask that person how to solve the problem if you're having a problem or get input from them. So find a mentor if you can. The second one is immediately start building rapport with your team. So you're now a manager. Have one-on-ones with them very regularly. Try and figure out who it is on your team that is excited that you're their manager. And you'll find that there are people on your team who uh, may not be excited that you're manager for a lot of different reasons. They may not like you personally. They may resent the fact that maybe they went for the, the manager job and you got it instead. Um, and so I think it's important as early as possible to start building rapport with your team to understand what makes them tick, to see how they feel about you as a manager, to find out where you can help them. You know, on my, I think my first one-on-one with my team at my, my prior company, I said, what can I help you with, right? So what are you interested in? You'd be surprised how varied the answers are to that question. But it helps, you know, right away to figure out, okay, what can I do to help this person progress in their career? Again, empathy, right, from their seat. What's it like to be them and where do they want to go and how can I help them get there as their manager? You didn't ask about this, but I'm going to say it. For me, the thing as a manager that I took the most joy in and that I found to be the most productive for myself and my team was focusing on how to get them opportunities, how to make sure that they're happy with their pay, and how to figure out um, promotion opportunities for them um, and talk them through my process of demonstrating their competence. And the reason is, in the long run, if you look at a 30-year career, that's the stuff that really matters, right? Like, if I help them solve this problem with a client or get out of a sticky situation, that's fine. But if I help them figure out what career path that they should be on or if I help them maximize their pay or if I help make sure that they're happy and getting promoted and that they're um, determining where they want to go long term, those are the things that pay off in the end. So that's where I I focus. Yeah, that's really good advice, Josh. You're right. In the long run, 10 years down the track, they're not going to remember what, you know, little technical thing that you did for them, but they're going to remember that, oh, Josh helped me get this pay rise or Josh helped me, you know, advance my career. That's, That's so great. 
Right. And those are the things that also pay off for them, right? Like if you help someone to get a promotion, you help them prepare for it. So I'm not talking about just gifting promotions to people, but, but if, you know, showing them, you know, kind of taking them through the two, two-step process as a manager. This is something you can do as a manager too. And saying, look, here's what you need to do to get where you want to go. So you ask where you want to go and then help them see how to, how to get there. That can material affect their life, right? Or have a material yeah, effect. Yeah, definitely. It can help them buy uh, their first house or it can help them uh, sell their old beat up car and get a new car that works or it can help them save up money for their first child and that sort of thing. And these are the things that can really help, you know, actually change the quality of the person's life personally, as opposed to just being, you know, another person who works at the job that they have. Yep, yep, definitely. So uh, final couple of questions. What is it that you do when you're, um, when you're not working or solving IT problems? And I guess before you start on this new adventure, it was just keep working. But <laughs> what do you do now? Uh, I like to play sports, so I go to the gym a couple days a week. Um, I try and keep in shape and, and, and you know, get outside and, and play sports outside when I can. I uh, read a lot. I like to spend time with friends. I, I mean, you know, um, some, some of the best nights of the week are just sitting over on somebody's couch, uh, you know, making something for dinner and watching something on TV. So I, I like to spend time with, with my friends and, and family. Those are the two things, you know, just trying to trying to stay in shape and then also, uh, you know, hanging out with people. I like to read. I read a lot. So that helps me to kind of, you know, keep getting a little bit smarter. Well, uh, you're a big college football fan, aren't you? I am. Yeah, I went to the University of Florida, both undergraduate and grad school. Uh, and now I live in Gainesville, which is where the University of Florida is. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big college football fan, uh, go Gators, and also, of course, college basketball. Um, where we yes. used to be pretty good and are now hopefully going to come back soon. All right. Any other final thoughts, Josh? No, I, this is a great talk. I, uh, you know, I, I came into this a little bit prepared, but I like to just sort of react to questions. And I, I thought that your questions are great. And I hope that, you know, aspiring managers, who I think is exactly who's listening to your podcast, I hope that, you know, from our, from our discussion that they at least find a couple of little tidbits, little things they can try or things that they can pursue to give them more opportunities and to give them a, a clearer vision for, you know, how they can achieve their goal of becoming a manager or managing part of the business. So um, I think this is a, is a great podcast. I appreciate you having me on. It's, it's been a great chat. Yeah, no, it's been great having you on too, Josh. And I, and I think there's been a lot of great advice given. And even for myself, uh, there's some stuff that I'm going to go back and listen through again and process, uh, which is really good. So where can we find out more about you, Josh? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Josh Duty. Uh, also, you can find me at uh, joshduty.com. Um, those are the two easiest places to find me. I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time, uh, so if you just uh, reach out to me there, I'm happy to, to holler back, um, and you can uh, read my blog at joshduty.com. Excellent. Fantastic. Make sure you go check that out, guys. Uh, and, Josh, thanks for being on the show, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Kestrel. It's been a blast. Excellent. Thanks, Josh. I really love this interview with Josh. He has some great thoughts around gaining trust with your team, career advancement, and creating your own competitive advantage. For the show notes and links to the books Josh mentioned, head over to www.managingsmartly.com forward slash six. That's the number six. If you're listening to this in early 2016, you'll also find details of the contest I'm running to coincide with the launch of the podcast. So please make sure you check the show notes. Until next time, remember to manage smartly. Thanks for listening to the Managing Smartly podcast, where we're all about helping software developers become managers. Check us out at www.managingsmartly.com.